Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 7, as we read verses 25 through 31. Now, before I read that text, I want to give you a bit of a reminder about where we were last week. Because last week, the events, and of course this week's events as well, they take place during the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus entered into Jerusalem during that time. He entered secretly. He began teaching in the temple area. And when he was teaching, he called upon the Jewish leaders to judge with right judgment. And so what comes next follows immediately on the heels of that admonition by Jesus. And so we read, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know that where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. You, O oh God, know the needs of every heart that is hearing this message right now. Would you send your spirit, the spirit of your Son, to awaken our hearts, set our gaze on you, and to fill us with a sense that you have all that we need within the storehouses of your grace. Help us to see, to believe, and to love you. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that we live in a unique time. And that uniqueness has nothing to do with viruses, believe it or not. We have had viruses and plagues upon the world ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. It certainly isn't sin that makes our day unique. After all, we're sinners, and sin has been in the world ever since Adam and Eve. Um, it's not our nature. Our nature hasn't changed. We are still the same kind of people that came before. It's not the world either. After all, we live in the same world, the same cursed creation, um, the same world with the same Savior that people have always had held out to them for the taking. So it isn't even that we have Christ held out to us that makes this time unique. And yet our culture is unique in this sense. And I think this is the case if you look through the different periods of human history before Christ after Christ, during the uh, Roman time, during the Middle Ages. I think that this time is still unique, and here's how it's unique. It's unique in the sense that people in our own day have been exposed to the truths of Christianity. Uh, people at a popular cultural level have generally despised the truths of Christianity, and yet those same people also depend on and lean on those very same truths in order to make sense out of life. 
Christendom as an idea, as an institution, has, has collapsed. And yet people still need all of the good things that Christendom brings, in a sense. You see, we live, in other words, in a deeply conflicted and contradictory age that, that can't understand why it's so confused about who we are. An age that isn't sure why uh, it's so confused about our existence and, and what it all means. And yet in the same breath is absolutely convinced that the Christian answer cannot possibly be the right one. Any answer but the biblical answer. And many people are unwilling to go where the divine signposts point them to. And so because of that, there's this, there's this ingrained contradiction in all of modern life. We want to be happy, but we don't know what to be happy for. We want to be productive, but we don't ultimately know what we're producing. And we ultimately don't know why we're producing. We want to have meaning, but we can't figure out where we're supposed to get our meaning from. And so modern people just live with this incredible, unresolved tension. We need answers. We have no answers. And we know exactly where not to get those answers, right? Anywhere but the, the answers that religion gives us. And especially anywhere except the answers that Christianity gives to us. We'll listen to everybody else's answers to these things, but we don't want to listen to the Christian answer. In a sense, I think we've been inoculated as a society. We've gotten just enough Christianity dripped to us that it's almost like our society has been vaccinated against the Christian message now. I do think that this type of confusion in this moment that we live in is special. It is different. Uh, and yet it isn't the first time that Jesus has left people scrambled in their thoughts, struggling to work through who he is exactly and what that means for them. Jesus is speaking to these Jewish people who are very conflicted, right? Here they are, they're trying to sort through their own ideas of Jesus, and you can just sort of see it go, not going very well for them. Uh, the, the people were just muttering about Jesus and whispering about Jesus minutes ago, and now here he is standing in their presence. And, and, they, and think of all the ideas that they're trying to sort of hang together all at once, the sort of mental seesawing that's going back and forth in this crowd. Just think of these, these different examples, right? They think to themselves, well, maybe the authorities know this is the Christ, right? Maybe there's a conspiracy afoot. Maybe they know that this is the Christ. And, and then in the next breath, they think, no, this, this can't be, this guy can't be the Christ. And then they think, well, well look, he's, he's speaking openly and they're afraid of him. And then they think, no, no, that doesn't mean that he's the Messiah. So on the one hand, they have this impulse that pulls them toward Jesus, and at the same instance, they have another impulse that pulls them away. They say, this guy seems, he seems like the Messiah. And, and then in the next breath, they say, oh, no, but we're supposed to know where the Messiah is from. We don't know where this guy's from. It's, it's fine. This, this guy's not the Messiah. It is tempting to sort of chuckle at this crowd just going back and forth, thinking these things through and coming up completely confused. But 
instead of judging these people, instead of you know laughing at these folks, let's try to follow their thinking. Let's work through these things with them. Um, let's follow them in their effort to sort through the truth of Jesus and just what it is about him that makes him so compelling and, and repelling all at once. Well, we'll do this through three different points, the Messiah's location, the Messiah's protection, and the Messiah's intention. The Messiah's location, the Messiah's protection, and the Messiah's intention. First, this morning, we have the Messiah's location. Um, if, if you look at what's, at what's going on here, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem are considering Jesus. That's the phrase directly out of the text. Some of the people of Jerusalem are, are considering Jesus. And, and as they do, it becomes clear that the efforts of the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus actually end up being part of the draw. They actually make Jesus seem more interesting. Um, you see, this is not the first time in human history that people have had like a punk rock attitude, right? Uh, forget about the establishment. Forget about what the leadership of this nation wants for us. What is more compelling than somebody that the leadership are trying to kill? Let's listen to that guy. And that's kind of their, their impulse. You know, you almost want to coach the leadership a little bit on their, on their approach and say, you know, if you had just left this man alone, the people would not have been nearly as interested in him. They end up amplifying the message, which is something, by the way, that ends up happening in church history. One of the most interesting things that happens in church history is the fact that the Apostle Paul persecutes before he becomes the Apostle. He's just a Pharisee. He ends up persecuting the Christians of Jerusalem, and as he does that, what happens? He scatters them all over the region, and the gospel ends up spreading. He ends up being the cause of the spread of the gospel. Inevitably, this is what happens with the world. They try to oppose Christ, they oppose the message of Jesus, and they end up spreading it. They end up unintentionally making people hear more than they would have otherwise. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. These people are listening because of the opposition to Jesus. And so they ask, why are they trying to kill this man? Maybe the authorities know something we don't know. He's, he becomes very interesting to them. So in other words, they're at least considering the claims of Jesus for themselves. And they have this argument with themselves, and they, and they seem to sort of employ an odd, an odd method to the argument. They, they, you hear it in verse 27. It says, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. All right, this is an argument. We've talked about arguments before and, and what makes a good argument. And so here's what's so remarkable about this argument they're making. Every word of their argument is wrong, to quote Luke Skywalker. Every single word you just said is wrong. How is it wrong? Look, look closer at what they say. First, they say they know where this man comes from. They look at Jesus. They say, we've got this guy figured out. We know where he comes from. We know all about him. The, the real Messiah is supposed to be more mysterious, right? They're right about saying they know where this man comes from in a sense. They're right in the sense that they know he is from the region of Galilee. His, his reputation precedes him. 
They know the physical place where he's from. They know his home, perhaps. They, they know maybe even where he grew up. They, they may know his family. But they don't really know where he's from. They don't really know where Jesus is from. After all, do they understand that this man is the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning? Do they understand as Micah 5.2 says that Jesus is the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. No, of course they don't understand that. They don't really know where Jesus is from. And then second, they say that they will not know where the Messiah comes from. We will not know where the Messiah comes from. They, they almost seem to have imagined that on the one hand, the Messiah would be so glorious, so... Uh, so mysterious and yet at the same time that he would be a political ruler right this was typical in the ancient world of the way that political rulers wanted to be thought of they wanted to be deified this is one of the things that caesar augustus employed when he rose to the rank of of taking over the empire and being caesar he made sure to spread stories and myths about himself and his origins and in fact, in fact, he was happy to have conflicting tales of his origin because all he needed was to seem greater than a man. And they're imagining this for the Messiah. They're imagining that he would be um, different, that he would be more mysterious. And all they needed to do was read Micah 5.2 to be corrected on this. Micah 5.2, if they'd read it, they would have seen that they should know where the Messiah is from. Listen to Micah 5.2 again. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So they are picturing in their minds a world leader who materializes onto the world stage, just drops out of the sky, in a sense, You know, there is, this, there is this sense in which it might be easier to follow someone who seems to walk one foot off of the ground, right? Someone who doesn't put his, his pants on one leg at a time. Jesus isn't that, right? Jesus is, Jesus is earthy. He's, he's dirty. He, he has nowhere to lay his head. He rides a donkey instead of a, a grand white stallion. Jesus is lowly. Jesus is humble. Jesus is disappointing as that kind of, of leader. And so Jesus' response to them is so powerful that if they're able to hear it. And, and what he says is this in verse 28. He says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So Jesus is choosing what to argue with here and what not to argue with. Have you ever known people who, if, if someone says something, they will find the fault in everything they say instead of going after the bigger point? Well, Jesus does that. He doesn't pick on all these little things. You don't really know where I come from. You don't really understand the Messiah. You should read the book of Micah. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus moves right to the important stuff. And so if I could restate Jesus' response, I think what he's saying is something like this. 
He's saying, my work bears witness that I have been sent by God, and these works make you feel guilty. And so you know I am from God, but you don't recognize the Father, and you don't recognize me. Why is that? Because of your your flesh-minded opinions. You imagine for yourselves a God who approves of your self-righteousness. You picture a God whose Messiah isn't coming as the word to be crucified, who will not send Christ into the form, in, in the form of a cross, but in worldly splendor. That's what you are imagining for yourselves. So in essence, this is where Jesus responds. He says, you don't know me, you don't know where I came from, and you don't even have your eyes in the right place to know what to look for in the first place. Leon Morris, commentator, says it this way. He says, if they had really known where Jesus came from, they would have known that he was indeed the Messiah. But all that they knew was that he came from Nazareth, an unimportant village in Galilee. They were quite ignorant of the virgin birth, of the truth that Jesus was from above, and that he was where he was because the Heavenly Father had sent him. They were ignorant of these things. Now, there is an application here, if, if I'm not mistaken, and, and I think it's this. It's very simple. Proximity to Jesus and his teachings doesn't necessarily yield faith. These people are around Jesus physically. They see him. They hear him teaching. And yet, there is, there's not a universal response to the gospel here. Just being in church... And hearing the sermon each week cannot save us. I, I said this last week, that the gospel doesn't happen by osmosis. It didn't work on Jesus' family. It doesn't work on these people. Um, if I could apply it to today, hopefully we don't have to do this anymore, but streaming from home <laughs> consistently, faithfully, week in, week out, won't save us either. The, the preaching of the word has to also be believed and treasured in our own heart. It is superstitious for us to think that our ears can hear a message and that that will save us, or going through the motions of being in church every week can save us, or having our name on the roll of a church somewhere can save us. You can be in a church as much as you think a good person would go to church. But without faith in Christ, being in church won't save you. We'll see at the end that many people do end up believing, but for the moment, let's just be warned by the fact that many are in the presence of Jesus, and yet they don't believe. Let's take that warning with sobriety and seriousness. Let's use it to reflect on our own heart. We hear sermons week in, week out. We come to worship, Lord willing, next week. And before that, we were coming week in and week out. That doesn't save us. Apart from faith. These things are futile. Second, this morning, we see the Messiah's protection. In verse 30, there is an attempt to arrest Jesus. And yet, John tells us, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
When, when John is giving the reason for the crowd's inability to arrest Jesus, the reason given isn't that Jesus was slippery. The reason given isn't that Jesus was clever. It, it, the, the reason given is not Jesus was very sneaky. The reason given is not that the crowd was inept, that they were incapable of getting him. The reason John gives is divine. His hour had not yet come. It wasn't his time. God had not determined that this was the hour of his arrest. It was still future. The hour of his arrest was not yet. He's going to be arrested, but not at this time. Always remember that the death of Jesus was no accident. God is sovereign over the timing of when Jesus is captured, when Jesus is killed. When does it happen? It happens by God's will in God's timing. What does Paul say in Romans 5, 6? He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There is a, there is a real comfort for us in this, right? Early on in my Christian walk, I, I sort of thought of the death of Jesus as God making lemonade out of lemons. And I sort of pictured God sending Jesus, and then Jesus was met with hatred and vitriol. And then God said, well, what should I do about this situation? I thought my son would be better received. And yet the picture that the Bible paints is one of intentionality. Nothing accidental here, right? At every stage of the ministry, Jesus was, was able to avoid suffering and to avoid being captured, right? So Matthew 6.53 says, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? A.W. Pink says it, says it this way. He says, They could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining. Until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate son bowed his father's good, to his father's good pleasure, he was immortal. Until the hour struck, he was immortal. And this means that what Jesus endured was endured willingly, in full knowledge, right? Jesus lived with self-control. He was not a victim. He was not a martyr. Why would he willingly go through this? He did it, he did it for us. He did it for, for you and me. Hebrews 12, 2 talks about Jesus' motivation in approaching the cross by saying to us that the joy set before him was the reason he endured the cross. It was the joy set before him. Now, there's no joy in the cross. There's no joy in suffering and, and bleeding and, and suffocating to death by being nailed to a tree. That's not the joy that was set before him. The joy that the author of Hebrews is talking about is what it was going to produce, rescuing you and me from the clutches of sin. Why would he willingly go through this? Because of you. Because of me. Because we're sinners and he loves us. 
Because Jesus did not call the 12 legions of angels. He was not taken by the crowd. Not yet, anyway. Instead, it was at the right time that he died for us. But there's an important reminder that's, I think, true of us to a degree as well. I don't want us to miss this. We may not be able to control when we die. But none of us will ever die until our time actually comes. This is one of the applications that Calvin makes from this text. Listen to how Calvin says it. He says, The time of every human being's death has been fixed by God. It is difficult to believe that while we're subject to so many accidents, exposed to so many open and concealed attacks from both human beings and beasts, and liable to so many diseases, we are safe from all risk until God is pleased to call us away. Everyone's hour of death is appointed by God. Jesus is protected by the Father's will. And you know what that does? Knowing the Father's will, and knowing that the Father is in control, and knowing that all of this is under his direction, gives Jesus a confidence in his ministry that he can serve and work and labor. But we all are. We can live without fear, just like Jesus did, because Nothing can happen to us until the Lord wills that our hour has come. You believe that about, about yourself? That doesn't mean that we should live carelessly, right? Confidence in the promise of God must not go further than God himself commands. But it does mean that we should not be fearful. We should not be fearful. Let's do a direct application then. Why wear masks in church? We don't do it because we're afraid. We do it because we love. We do it for the other people. We do it for the person next to us. We do it for the person that is two pews back that could be endangered by us. We take reasonable precautions to love others. That's why we do it. We don't do it for fear. Most Christians I know at this moment are concerned about what is happening in the world around us, right? Uh, everyone is. Um, if they aren't concerned about becoming sick, they're not concerned about catching a virus, they're at least concerned about the economy and the attendant problems that stem from how we try to fight the disease. And I don't, I don't know if fear is one of the things that is a problem for you, but it could be. Just when I go on Facebook and I look at the local news stations, articles, and I read the comments underneath, this is what I see, a prevailing sense of fear. Prevailing sense of fear. Now it may be that just the fearful ones are the ones commenting, but I see high levels of paranoia, anxiety, and fear out there a lot. What is your attitude? Have you, have you remembered the sovereignty of God in all of this? Have you, have you remembered that in December of last year, God knew what was coming in February? Loud and clear, he knew. It did not confuse him. 
Our God was not caught off guard. Have you remembered in all of this that God is almighty over all? Or have you begun to forget? Have you begun to slip and to believe that you live in the same world that your unbelieving neighbors believe that they live in? I go back to Pink's language that he used earlier. Until God's foreordained hour strikes for all of us, we are immortal. We will die one day, but it will always be, always be on God's timetable. This was true of Jesus, and it's true of us too. Third this morning, we see the Messiah's intention. What is Jesus's intention? His intention is to stir up faith in his people and to elicit unbelief from his enemies. That's what exactly what's happening here. Now, this, this might seem kind of strange. Would Jesus really have part of his mission be to elicit unbelief? Actually, yes. Um, think about the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus quotes at the beginning of his ministry to explain what he's doing and why he's doing it. He says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So Matthew, in Matthew 13, 14, he takes this passage and applies it to the ministry of Jesus. You see, Jesus has come to elicit a response from his people that will be a response of faith. And from his enemies, that will be a response of rejection. And we see this here this morning. In verse 30, you have a group within the crowd who tried to arrest Jesus. They try to take him by force. And so he is, in this moment, of course, met with rejection and unbelief. But then, but then, what do you see? In verse 31, it says, many of the people believed in him. All right, so the preaching of the gospel that, that, that Jesus does here does yield results. It yields positive results. People believed in him. What I do love is that there's no mention of their rank. There's no mention of their walk of life. It just says people believed in him. You see, in the end, those things ultimately don't matter, right? The demographics. There's one Reformed writer named Musculus. I think he's got a great name, Musculus. Um, and Musculus says this. He says, uncultured, illiterate, uneducated, unimportant, and lowly human beings are far more fitted for this faith than those who are conspicuous with a show of holiness or exalted in a position of power, or inflamed by their worldly knowledge and wisdom. He says, those people are far more fitted for the kingdom. See, the people believe, while it seems that their more educated leaders make plans to seize Jesus and get rid of him and wipe him out. I think it would be wrong for us to draw the, the, the conclusion that, therefore, God has a preference for poor people. Uh, Musculus goes on, he says, Not everyone who occupies a lowly place and is ignorant of things in this world is immediately elect and fit for the kingdom of God. 
Such human beings are, in fact, often more disposed to receive faith in Christ and the grace of the heavenly kingdom. But not all poor, lowly, and uneducated people are instantly equipped with such a heart that they rightly follow that advantage which their lot gives them. He doesn't choose all people who, who are poor, because if he did, then there would seem that God is basing his choice on a, some kind of worldly basis. And so Musculus concludes, and I'm going to stop quoting him now. He says, Therefore, he does not reject all wealthy people, all learned people, all powerful people, and he does not elect all poor, lowly, and uneducated people. This is really beautiful, though, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus preaches to a mixed group, and he gets a mixed response. He isn't accepted by... Everybody, And if you have an adversarial view of the world around us, you probably expect that unbelief. Maybe you feel like your pessimism in a moment like that is rewarded when people reject the gospel. But any pessimism, any negative assumptions we make about how the gospel will be received when we tell others about Jesus needs to be tamed by the other truth we see here. And the other truth we see here is so important. It says many of the people believed in him. My question is, maybe you expect unbelief, but do you live with the other expectation that many people will also believe in him? Do you live with that expectation that, that when you tell people the gospel, the Lord may just wake them right up and make them see? Just like he did with you. You expect God to do the things in the heart of other people that he's done with you before? Are you as amazed that your heart has been changed? Well, take that amazement and become more optimistic. That's what I'm saying. You expect that you won't be the last person on earth to have their heart changed by God? Are we so arrogant that we think that we're the last convert that ever lived? We've got to live with the expectation that Christ will keep building his church. He will. We as Christians do not get to have a defeatist mentality. We don't get to walk around saying, Woe is me. People will never believe in Jesus. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Jesus is rejected by people. A lot of those are wealthy, a lot of those are well-known, they're movers and shakers, but do you ever consider that every day around the world, souls are conquered by God's Spirit? There are men and women, boys and girls, every day who bow their knee to Jesus, and it is always a miraculous work of the Spirit of God when it happens. New life, a heart of stone, turned into a heart of flesh. Our God is at work. He is at work in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches. Even now, there are people around the globe that we all live on who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's happening right now as I'm speaking. It's happening right now as you're watching. So do not, Christian, do not, Walk around with a sad face, 
Do not walk around expecting defeat because it isn't biblical. Many of the people believed in him. I mentioned at the start just the immense confusion of our own age. And I'm sure that you see that confusion around you. You see the, the fruits of that confusion around you, right? The, the world is at once attracted and repelled by Jesus. They, they love, they think they love anyway, Jesus' grace. They love his kindness. They love his humility. They value his gentleness. But all of these things are at odds with the godless universe. Who admires grace in a world without God? Where is the value in somebody from a worldly mindset and somebody getting treated well when they don't deserve it? What's the value of humility in a godless universe? What's the value in taking care of the weak in a nature that is red in tooth and claw. Don't we want the fittest to survive in a universe where all of the organisms are clawing to get to the top of the pile? Why do we value these things so much? And yet at the very same time undercut the worldview that gives us those things and value those things. All of those things are at odds with the godless universe. And, and in the same breath, what happens? The people of this age, they find the idea of a universe without God to be utterly compelling. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Yes, I love humility and grace. No, I don't like the idea of God. And that is the age we live in. The Lord makes sense. The Messiah makes sense. He makes sense of meaning. He makes sense of morality. He makes sense of purpose and reason and forgiveness of all of these things that modern people adore and that modern people value. Yet he is the Lord. And they are drawn by the things they can get from him and the sense that he brings to the universe. But the watching world also wants to run as far from Jesus as possible. Why is that? Because he makes sense, but he also makes demands. He makes demands on you as one of his creatures. He expects things from you. And here is the rub for our unbelieving family and friends and neighbors. The moral clarity of Jesus means that each of us will have to answer for how we lived. We will have to reckon, just as the Jews had to, with the Lord. Here is the rock-solid truth. You will, have to con you will continue to flounder apart from Jesus. You will, you will debate and, and argue. You will present your objections. You will have your excuses even. But try as you might. You'll never find anyone with the words of life and truth like Jesus has. Follow the example of the, of the people. What did the people do? Some of them believed in him. They're an example for us. They're an example for you to follow. Follow them today. 
Believe in Jesus. Trust in him alone. Confess your sin. And throw yourself upon his mercy. Ask him to be your security and to be your safety. Because when you do that, you will find the contradictions you've been living with resolved. You'll have peace with God. You'll know why you were made. You'll know why the world is the way it is. And best of all, you'll know the peace that you've been looking for all your life. All of it answered in one man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are confused on our own. We're tossed about by our own moods and desires, our own inner conflicts. At the same time, your Son entered this world so that we could have a sure and stable foundation upon which to stand. You have come to be our Lord and our Savior so that we wouldn't have to live in uncertainty and confusion. So as you are set before us this morning, would you set our eyes and our hearts upon your, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.